Have you ever been walking through a store and had a book catch your eye? It looks good. It sounds good. And it's a reasonable price. So you make a purchase, you take it home, and you begin to read. It doesn't take very long for you to realize that this book is hot garbage. This problem seems to pop up more frequently in the paranormal and the esoteric communities. But what are the warning signs that you should keep an eye out for? Tonight, you'll find out a little bit more about my background and what drove me to start this podcast. I'll give you a hint. It was inspired by some hot garbage. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Hmm. Welcome to the Esoteric Footnotes. Welcome back, goblins! Before we get started tonight, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. We have had a promotion. Tonight, I need to thank Soul Rising Studios, Grand Inquisitor Samantha, and now, Grand Inquisitor Annie K. The Hobgoblins are still working on your robes of office. You'll get them... eventually. Hobgoblins aren't exactly known for their work ethic. Anyway, members of the Archive get early episodes, extended episodes, and those pledging $8 or more a month are mentioned by name at the beginning of every show. If you too would like to join the Esoteric Archive, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Your contributions help pay server cost, purchase reading material, and refills the chum bucket which I use to help lure away the octoduck who has come to take my ship. Once again, that is patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. There is a topic that I don't often address on this show. And that topic is me. Sure, I share my opinions and on occasion share my encounters. But outside of that, you probably don't know too much about me. And if I'm being honest, I kind of prefer it that way. Recently, I was asked to give a presentation at a conference for metaphysical professionals. That conference was subsequently canceled. So I have this presentation that I have yet to deliver. On the plus side, it means I don't really have to prepare an episode this month. To begin, my name is Jason, and I have grown up in West Virginia, and I've lived here my entire life. I went to West Virginia University, where I got a degree in history, and later went on to get a graduate-level certification in cultural resource management. Yes, that is one big word salad that sounds fancy, but what exactly does it mean? At the time I was getting this degree, I would quip to people, Have you ever seen the show This Old House? It's kind of like that, but on an academic level. Now that is a little too reductive, and it really only reflects the classes that were available at the time. Cultural resource management covers a broad spectrum of topics, but we'll get into that later. Let's backtrack a little bit and talk about my history degree. When I was in high school, 
I absolutely hated history. It was nothing but memorization. It was dates and events, and they were all unrelated to each other. They were just little snapshots out of time. And I think that is a failing of the modern education system. Everything has to be quantifiable. You have to be able to take a test. You have to be able to justify your funding at the end of the year. As a result, the students largely just learn trivia. There's no greater understanding of the correlation between places and people and events. They don't see that one thing leads into another. They just get that snapshot. A single Polaroid in the pages of history. When I got to college, I took a few history courses and realized that history is just one big story. Those trivial aspects that we were forced to memorize in high school, they became things that you could look up in a book. Those were tangential. The important part were the people. What happened to who, and when, and what that meant for a generation, and then how that generation influenced the next. When you begin to see history as a story that is actively being written, you begin to notice how close we are to certain events and how much the past influences us today. More importantly, as it reflects on this podcast, this degree taught me how to do proper and ethical research. But we'll come back to that. When I started taking cultural resource management courses, it was still a fairly new program. The lead professor had a specialty in historic housing, and because of that, that became the theme of the entire program. That said, cultural resource management is so much more than that. It is basically applied history. Let's take a moment to be brutally honest here. American history is rough. A lot of what we were taught in grade school is really a sugar-coated version of what actually happened. As a result, a lot of what we think we know is really just popular folklore. There was a conscious effort to do this from people in charge. They wanted something to inspire Americans, Something to instill this sense of picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. Which, let's face it, that's a ludicrous phrase. No one is going to pick themselves up by their own shoelaces. There's just not enough leverage. So to use that for economic mobility, it's kind of just a slap in the face. To combat this rose-tented version of history, cultural resource management focuses on history as it pertains to place. It answers the question, what happened here? And more significantly, why is this important? A random house isn't necessarily historically significant, but falling water as a house is. Anyone who has seen it can tell you exactly why falling water is special. But that's not so easy for homes whose significance is historical. Take that one step further and try explaining to someone why a field is historical. 
or why a rock formation is significant in the grand scheme of history. To some people, a location just looks like an undeveloped piece of property. But to an historian, that's the Devil's Den in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I think we can all agree that Gettysburg is a significant location in American history. It's part of our culture. It shaped who we are today. But in this world, there's people who have more money than they do common sense. Where most people see a somber reminder of our inability to get together as a country, some people see that as a great place for a condominium. And I'm not being facetious here. This is an ongoing problem in the city of Gettysburg. I'm not advocating against personal property rights. I'm just saying that a location that is technically a mass grave probably isn't the best site for luxury housing. Cultural resource managers advocate on behalf of these historically significant locations. And one of the most important skills someone in this field can have is being able to tell a story. Because that's what makes history compelling. It's not the dates. It's not the trivia. It's the people and how they were affected by the events around them. But there is one thing about cultural resource management that typically gets overlooked. And oddly enough, it's the first word in the descriptor. Culture. Now, culture isn't just how people live and how they talk and what they believe. Culture is the story that we tell about ourselves. And sometimes those stories include monsters and magic. Now, some of you are probably thinking, Jason, are you telling me that Bigfoot is on par with the events surrounding D-Day? Not exactly, no. But kind of, yes. If it weren't for modern mythology, would anyone know about Loch Ness, Scotland, or Flatwoods, West Virginia, or even Roswell, New Mexico? No, probably not. But that's just it. These locations are important based on the significance that we give to them. And all of this can have a domino effect. For example, how many people now know about Chief Cornstalk as a result of the Mothman? In fact, that is a really good example. There is a popular belief that Chief Cornstalk cursed all of Point Pleasant based on the betrayal of the settlers in that area. When you start to dig into the history, you find out that, yes, Chief Cornstalk was betrayed and executed by settlers in a fort at Point Pleasant. But the curse? The curse was entirely made up. You see, the curse entered popular mythology as a result of a play that was enacted in 1921. The script to that play was subsequently lost, and as a result was lost to recent memory. At least, until a copy of that script was discovered. And this is where historic research methods come in. That dated copy of the script is the oldest known mention of the curse of Chief Cornstalk. Some of you may be saying, 
Well, how does that prove that there was no curse? Think of it like this. You're digging in your front yard and you find a penny. That penny is dated 1975. Now, that doesn't mean that the penny was deposited there in 1975. It could have shown up any time after the date that it was minted. But we also know that it's not possible for that penny to have been deposited before 1975. With folklore, that time frame gets a little bit fuzzy. This could have been something that was in the popular culture at the time that was circulating around Point Pleasant, but it just finally got written down in the play in 1921. At best, we can say that the curse of Chief Cornstalk is a 20th century invention. Had there been any more evidence of this curse, it would have been written down sometime in the previous 150 years. The sad truth is that Cornstalk didn't have time to make a final proclamation at his death. He was killed by an angry mob in retaliation for the death of a colonial militiaman. A death that took place after Cornstalk had already surrendered himself to Fort Randolph. So while the curse of Chief Cornstalk isn't exactly real, the legend is a reflection of our societal guilt for his murder. This is a good example of different types of sources used for research. There are three types of sources when you're doing this type of work. Primary sources, secondary sources, and tertiary sources. Primary sources are the most valuable. They are written by the people who encountered the event. These could include witness interviews, a written account, a journal, a video, photos, really any way that the event was recorded by the people who experienced it. I do want to caution you, though. Primary sources are better but that doesn't mean that they are reliable. What is recorded is a single person's interpretation of what happened. This interpretation can sometimes be skewed by that person's individual beliefs or history. That's why it's important to get as many primary sources as possible when you're doing research. Now, a secondary source is someone who has gathered a bunch of primary sources and assembled them into a single cohesive story. You have to be careful with secondary sources because you don't know what the author's agenda really is. Without reviewing the primary sources used for that interpretation, you don't know what was included and what was left out. On the plus side, Secondary sources tend to be the most plentiful, and if you're trying to locate primary sources, it's a good way to do that. On the other hand, a lot of secondary sources will cite other secondary sources for their information. Finally, we have tertiary sources, and these are a little tricky. It used to be that tertiary sources were things like encyclopedias, but we don't exactly have those anymore. Now we have Wikipages and Wikipedia. For better or worse, these resources can be influenced and edited by pretty much anybody. 
on any given day, the information could come from an expert or, conversely, from an armchair expert. So how does this relate to the Esoteric Book Club? Having this information will help you to become a little bit more discerning when you see that flashy book title sitting on the shelf. Here's a few quick things that you can do while you're still in the store to check out the book. First, and by no means a deal-breaker, does the book have a table of contents or an index? Hopefully it has both, but that's not always the case. Like I said, this isn't a deal-breaker, but just be warned that this will make finding information in the future much, much more difficult after you've already read the book. And since you're already flipping through the book, check out the footnotes. Does it even have footnotes? Does it have a works cited page? What about a bibliography? The author didn't come up with all this stuff out of a vacuum. It had to have come from somewhere. If they're not telling you the inspiration for their book, that's a pretty big red flag. This next part isn't the easiest, especially if you're new to the field. But do you recognize the author's name? Is it a pretty big author, or is it someone relatively obscure? Even if it's a newer author, they should have something on their biography page. There should be a list of blogs, YouTube videos, or some other location where you can check out their earlier works. Like I said earlier, authors don't work in a vacuum, and you don't go from being completely unrecognized to being a published author overnight. Another clue that you can get from their biography is what are their affiliations? What groups do they belong to? Are they part of a coven? Are they part of a secret society? Or are they some weirdo that lives in a cabin isolated out in the middle of the woods who writes their information on the back of brown paper bags? What? That's not oddly specific. Stop looking at me like that. Anyway, knowing what organizations and groups they belong to can give you a clue as to what their particular biases may or may not be. And I hate to mention it, but there are certain organizations where things like racism, sexism, bigotry all run a bit more rampant than in the mainstream. And sometimes these biases are a bit subtle within the book, but if you know what organizations the author belongs to, it will give you a little bit of a heads up before you even start reading. Once you have an idea about the subject, the information within, and a little bit about the author, you have to ask, how would I classify this book? Is it a case book? Is it a topical report on a specific subject? Is it an instruction manual? Now, I'm not saying that every book has to have a specific purpose for you to buy it, but it is good to know whether you're getting this for research purposes or just for fun. If you've made it to this stage and you're still not sure about the book, that's where the internet actually comes in. Now you can start looking on things like Google, social media, Go to different forums, possibly even Reddit. Somebody out there has to have read this book 
and somewhere there is a review of it. You might even be able to find a podcast about it. That's, uh, that's a lot of work for a book that you haven't even read yet, isn't it? I'm sure it's pretty apparent how you could use all of this information for things like cryptids, or folklore, or even UFOs. But how does this apply to books on magic? This is a little bit trickier. You have to start with the author. What else have they written? Have they been a contributor to a compilation? Do they possibly have a regular blog? Let me give you an example. The author of The Path of Paganism, John Beckett, had a long-standing blog series on Patheos Pagan well before he even published a book. In fact, my first encounter with his writing was not in physical book form, but came up as an excerpt through Google Books. Once I had an idea of what his writing style was actually like, I checked out his blog to see what his point of view was. Something similar happened when I first discovered Morgan Daimler. I had a friend who asked me if I had any recommendations for Irish paganism. So after a quick Google search and a little bit of footwork, I found out that Morgan is one of the most respected authorities on Irish paganism in the modern age. Another benefit of using the internet ahead of time is that you can find out whether or not the author actually practices and if they've tried out the spells that are listed in the book. I hate to say it, but there are some authors out there who are magical in name only. A positive example of this is the author Catherine Heath. She will tell you straight up in her book, Elves, Witches, and Gods, that everything she has written in there are things that she has personally practiced and refined over a series of years. If she hasn't done it, it's not in that book. Another example is the author of Six Ways, Aidan Walker. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, Sigils work better if phrased in a positive manner. I have no idea why, they just do. And this little nugget of wisdom comes from years of experience. And that isn't something that you can easily replicate, nor is it something that you can fake. All of that aside, there are some pitfalls that you still need to look out for. The first question that you should ask is, who does this book target? This isn't as simple as knowing the level of experience needed to understand the contents of the book. You need to look for certain subtle clues, clues that are often referred to as dog whistles. These are words or phrases that, by themselves, don't really have much meaning, but in the right context, they have a lot of subtext. For example, a book on folk magic is perfectly fine. But if you're reading a book on heathenism and they start to talk about folkish practices, ooh, you need to be very careful with the information within those pages. Chances are there will be subtle ethnocentrism at best, and at worst, outright bigotry. 
Sometimes you won't know any of this information going into it because, surprisingly, there are fake authors out there. And I'm not talking about someone who uses a pen name. I'm talking about an author who doesn't actually exist. These books are usually a mishmash of various ghost writers who are crammed together under a single pen name, usually by the publisher themselves. The goal isn't to deliver good information. The goal is to cash in on a current trend. Worse yet, we now have to worry about books that aren't even written by people. AI has started taking over the paranormal community. In fact, it's been there for quite a while. These books are usually rather short and oftentimes independently published. But there's a trick you can use for this. Again, check out the author. If they've released 400 titles in the past two years, there's a very good chance that this is not a legitimate person. For those of you who are interested, that wasn't an exaggeration. That is an actual example. For better or worse, independent publishing has given a platform to a lot of people who otherwise would not be heard. On the other hand, independent publishing has given a platform to a lot of people who shouldn't be heard. You really just have to take the bad along with the good. That also doesn't mean that stuff released by major publishers is any better. Personally, I tend to favor small publications because their reputation is a little bit more on the line with each book they release. A couple good ones are Anomalist Books, Beyond the Fray Publishing, Daily Grail, and to some degree Moon Books. Although, if you go several steps up the corporate ladder, you find out that Moon Books is ultimately owned by Penguin Random House. That said, they still seem to have some level of autonomy in their publication. The major publishers are still releasing good information. Most of the time. I find that it tends to be a little bit more hit or miss with them. Sometimes I feel like they publish a book just so that they have a new release that month. So how does any of this help you when you're walking through a bookstore and, ooh, shiny, pops up? First, who does this book target? Is it for a practitioner? Or is it for someone who's looking for the witch talk aesthetic? Next, flip through the book. Does it have an index, a works cited page, or a bibliography? Can you easily tell where the author got their information? And finally, do you recognize the author? What else have they done? Do you see any more of their books on the shelf? If you do a quick Google search, do you find a bunch of pages that all say the exact same thing? Or do you find a blog, social media, or YouTube channels? If you follow these three principles, you should be able to locate a pretty decent book. I can't guarantee that it will be well written, but the information should at least be sound. Hopefully this helps you out the next time you're walking through the local bookstore and your eye catches something with a title like 
13 Ways to Hex Your Ex. I'm honestly not sure if that's a real book or not. I should probably Google that. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. We are reaching the end of Season 3, which means there's only one episode left before I take a one-month hiatus. Consider it a birthday present to myself. So until next time, remember, stay weird. Thank you.